This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Streaming Income. Or visit us on Bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S dot com. So on today's show, I spoke with Elizabeth Weindruck. She is a member of Bearings Alternative Investments, a global real estate, private equity, and real assets platform. Part of the funds and co-investments team, Liz is responsible for originating and underwriting funds and co-investments. Prior to joining the firm in 2015, she was with the Wells Fargo Investment Institute, where she led strategy, due diligence, implementation, and support efforts for private equity and private real estate products across the alternative investments platform. She's also worked in the private equity industry in a number of capacities, including roles at City Private Bank, Brook Private Equity Associates, and Investor Group Services. I really enjoyed this conversation with Liz today because we got a chance to talk about some of the big trends in private equity. And what was really interesting to me is that some of them are pretty well known, such as the rise of ESG and kind of how that's playing out in private equity. But some are less well known, such as how GPs are using capital call commitments and some other nuanced trends. Here's the conversation. Okay, Liz Weindruck, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Greg. Very excited to have you here. So this is not the first time you and I have actually sat down and had a conversation. In fact, I don't know if you will remember, but you and I met long ago. Well, maybe not long ago, but (laughs) I'll say... Six years ago, in fact, uh, when actually neither one of us was working for Bearings at the time. Does this ring a bell to you? It does. It feels like a lifetime ago, but I definitely remember getting um, a message from you, and I believe that we had coffee. That's right. You had either recently moved to the area or Mm -hmm. were planning to move to the area and were just trying to build your network. That's right. I remember. That's a great memory. I had just uh, kind of finished up 12 years or so on Wall Street and decided to move the family to Charlotte to be closer to our family here. And I reached out to you kind of cold, I think. And, uh, and was it cold? I think, I think that it might've been, it must've been a good email because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, apparently it worked. I know you were extremely gracious and I actually mm-hmm. looked back at my emails from six years ago and saw a little back and forth between us. Um, you were telling me I could find you, uh, in the crowd because you were nine months pregnant at the time and you would be easily <laughs> identifiable. So I'm guessing that means you have a six-year-old today. I do have a six-year-old today yeah. and a four-year-old. So Awesome. Awesome. Um, and anyhow, uh, from what I remember, you were extremely gracious and welcoming and, um, I, you know, thank you for, for uh, helping then and thank you for being here today. I'm excited to have you. Oh, thank you. It seems like you ended up in a great spot. Uh, likewise. Likewise. <laughs> so here we are both uh, with Bearings today. Um, I wanted to spend some time with you today talking about private equity, which is really your uh, area of expertise. You recently uh, wrote a piece called Views from the LPAC Seat. And I want to start there, actually, just defining our terms. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me what is an LPAC and I guess what's its significance? 
So LPAC, it's it's a little bit of a jargony term that we throw around in private equity, but it's LPAC, which stands for Limited Partner Advisory Committee. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a corporate board of directors mm-hmm. for a private equity fund. So not necessarily for the firm, but for the fund. Mm-hmm. And it's made up of a group of investors in the fund, uh, sometimes some of the larger investors, but sometimes not. Um, right. It's the kind of the closer and trusted relationships of that GP, which is the general partner mm-hmm. that's investing the fund. And it's a group where your purpose is really to just provide counsel and recommendations for that general partner. You can help them think about and talk through potential conflicts of interest, any potential risks to the investors. Uh, but it's it's a group that meets on probably a yearly basis as long as that fund is in existence. Okay. Okay. Got it. And so what is Baring's role or your role when it comes to LPAC seats or limited partner committees? So when we're acting as a limited partner, which means we're investing capital and funds on behalf of our clients, we have found that historically we're able to have closer relationships with those general partners and and more transparency into those underlying portfolios in instances where we do serve on that LPAC. And so in many instances, we will request to have that LPAC seat and over the years have become a trusted advisor and almost partner of these private equity firms when we're acting in that capacity. And so I actually did a look back through our portfolio today and of the around 300 active fund relationships that we have today, mm-hmm. we have 100 advisory board seats. Hmm. There are some instances when it doesn't make sense for us to have them, but in most instances, it's something that we like to have. Got it, got it. So it's kind of a, an influential position, I guess, but a, a position from which you can get perhaps a unique view into what's going on with a specific GP or general partner that you're investing in. Is that fair to say? Yes, it's fair to say that. You know, you're know, you sitting around the table with also a lot of very like-minded and very smart investors. Mm-hmm. And so you end up picking up on a lot of market intel and market knowledge just really by being in the room too. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, thank you for helping us kind of just set the stage there. What we're going to be talking about here is some of the trends that you and the team here at Bearings are actually seeing from that LPAC seat. So Let's dive right into that and, and let's start with one of the trends I feel like we've been seeing more and more headlines about, and that's uh, general partners selling stakes in their firms. In fact, PitchBook recently put out a piece on this topic where they said, and I quote, GP stakes fundraising continues to balloon with the three largest investors in the space seeking a combined $17 billion, more than has been raised for the strategy in the past decade. So that's a pretty staggering sentence that uh, the biggest investors in this space are out there currently seeking more money than has been invested in the last decade. What's going on here broadly with this trend and how should LPs, limited partners, be thinking about it? So first, I think it's fair to say that relative to the the private equity industry, it is somewhat of a new strategy. Mm -hmm. And so it's if you kind of go back and, and look back over time, this probably started in, you know, 2010, 2011. Okay. I think maybe some of the first institutional funds were raised to do this maybe in 2012. Okay. And was this done by previously like more of a hedge fund phenomenon? So it, it started out by purchasing stakes in, in hedge funds. Okay. And so, okay. you know, I would look at that as kind of the more liquid side of the coin when you're thinking about alternative investments. Yep. And it was groups who were purchasing stakes in, in hedge funds and either sitting on those stakes and holding them to generate cash flow. But in many instances, you know, as the industry became more competitive, it was groups that would come with some sort of value add. So, 
you know, we can we can help you grow your business. We can help you become more institutional. Got it. Got we it. can help you expand into a different, you know, strategy or geography. Okay. So they take a stake and sort of become a strategic partner to mm-hmm. help the firm grow in a variety of ways. Yes, exactly. But I, I think that it's probably fair to say that for a lot of reasons, that thesis in the hedge fund industry is probably pretty well played out. Okay. And the groups that were raising capital and having, you know, pretty good success within the strategy mm-hmm. moved into less liquid strategies like private equity mm. and private real estate. Mm-hmm. And so you've seen a number of, of groups come out and raise capital and purchase stakes in private equity firms. Okay. And so that is, um, that, that's the, the trend that we're talking about. And so from my perspective as a limited partner, it it's going to differ, right? If I'm looking at an opportunity that's investing in the stakes of the GP, mm-hmm. I've got a, a kind of a different motivation than as the limited partner that might be invested in the fund that's being run by that general partner. Right. And it's an interesting dynamic because if I've invested in a fund, part of the diligence that I have done is understanding the ownership structure, the incentives, the alignment of the firm and the team that yeah. is going to be managing capital on behalf of our clients. Mm-hmm. And if somebody on that team decides that they want to sell part of their stake mm-hmm. in their business, it's just important to understand why and yeah, when and what it. they're going to do with the proceeds. Got it, got it. Liz, another trend that you talked about in the piece that uh, you recently wrote uh, was that GPs are are using capital call facilities in a way that maybe it differs a little bit from how they've used them in the past, and it could change the optics around what returns look like. So can you just talk a little bit about that trend? Sure. And this is actually very topical. Um, I was at a, a conference recently, and this was top of mind for a lot of the limited partners I was speaking with. Mm-hmm. And Capital call facilities were traditionally used as a way to basically not have to call capital from limited partners every time a GP wanted to do a deal. And so they would sit, they would have a bridge line in place. They would call capital maybe on a quarterly basis. So they would have one capital call to their limited partners. And it was just, it was just cleaner. It was an easier way to, um, to transact. Okay. Uh, fast forward to the past probably five years or so. Rates have been incredibly low. Mm-hmm. These facilities and the use of the facilities has gotten, you know, it's, fairly inexpensive to use. And so they've been stretched out from a duration perspective now to 90, 180, 365 days, and sometimes even more. Okay. And what that does is that delays that first cash flow coming from the limited partner. And I'm going to get down in the weeds a little bit, okay. but most LPs look at GP returns and they look at their net internal rate of return, which is effectively just a, a calculation of cash flows over a series of time. Right. So if they are stretching out those capital calls and calling capital later, then they are going to have a higher net IRR than someone who is calling capital earlier. Right. And the punchline of this is that, you know, ultimately their their return at the end of the day may or may not be any better than one of their peers, but their net IRR is going to be probably 300 basis points higher. Hmm. And it's just a timing of cash flows. It's a timing of the cash flows issue. It's... um. And it effectively is adding additional leverage, which could be a little bit riskier mm-hmm. um, to, to that fund. And so, again, you know, I'm not going to say it's good. I'm not going to say it's bad. But this is another area where it's important for limited partners to do their homework, to have an apples to apples comparison of the different GPs that they're looking at over any period of time. Because that 300 basis points could be the difference between a first quartile and a second quartile manager. And it's just important to to understand that by either, 
you know, digging in a little bit further or maybe also paying a little bit more attention to those gross level returns as opposed to uh, to the net returns. Interesting. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point. Another topic that I wanted to make sure we covered is in the fundraising space generally in PE and kind of what you've seen, I guess, over recent years is fund sizes increasing, I guess, to accommodate larger checks from LPs. So can you talk a little bit about that trend? Is that something that concerns you or how are you thinking about that? It's a trend we're definitely mindful of. And I would say that it's a scenario in which very successful GPs often end up being victims of their own success. Hmm. If they raise a very small fund and do well, then generally their limited partners want to come back and they want to invest more, Mm -hmm. which could drive them to take in capital that's really kind of beyond their capacity to execute. And so this could be if they're doing deals of a certain size, if they raise more capital, they may have to do more deals and they may not have capacity mm-hmm. within their team to manage that that number of deals. Or potentially they could go up market slightly and start basically playing in an area that's kind of outside their strike zone, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. if, if they're used to playing within a, a capitalization range of, you know, 10 to 15 million in EBITDA, but all of a sudden are, are going after 40 to $50 million dollar of EBITDA businesses, that's a, that's a different game. It is a completely right. different ballgame. Yeah. And so yeah. you end up, unfortunately, if, if GPs do take on that extra capital, they could end up uh, doing, you know, what we call strategy drift. And that's either doing, you know, more deals where they may not have the capacity to execute or doing deals that are really outside of uh, their, you know, key strengths. Got it. And so as an LP, is there a kind of a playbook for how to handle this? It generally happens uh, during the the first close of a fund and with sort of the kind of the agreement of a hard cap on a fundraise. Most most general partners will go out to market to raise a certain amount of capital, but we'll also have a hard cap on that in case there's demand that really kind of outstrips that supply so that, you know, they end up having to either they don't raise capital for as long or in some instances, and this doesn't make anybody happy, they have to cut people back from their initial allocations. Mm. But we do think that having, you know, pretty disciplined hard caps, are, it, it's pretty important to us. Got it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. You know, another big trend that we've seen is the kind of continued advance of environmental, social, and governance, ESG considerations. Mm-hmm. And that's in the investment industry as a whole. But I'm interested in kind of hearing how that is manifesting itself in the private equity world. So maybe just talk to us broadly and then we'll get into some specifics, but how's kind of ESG taken hold in private equity today? So I would say there's a little bit of a difference by region and also kind of a difference when you think about the level of capitalization of the private equity firm. And I just mean that, you know, how large they are and the sizes of businesses that they're investing in and maybe how material those ESG issues might be to that firm and that underlying business. There are a number of firms in in Europe that I would say have, you know, a very thoughtful methodology and a thoughtful way of going about it. And um, a number of firms in the U.S. as well. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if you think about as you, you know, are investing in sort of the smaller end of the market, it's something that I know is very important to the general partners that are out there. But I would say that the thought process is not as, as well baked as it might be elsewhere okay. around the globe. And 
I would say it's increased in its prominence really in the last probably five to 10 years. Okay. And that's because the the capital allocators, so the, the limited partners sitting around the table are asking the questions. Mm-hmm. Limited partners have always been concerned about the G. They've always been concerned about governance. And so that comes across in, you know, transparency and reporting in, um, you know, how private equity firms are constructing the boards at their portfolio companies. And so governance is an area where I think you know, there's been um, a lot of scrutiny and that's, you know, yep. nothing has really changed there. Right. So they're fairly advanced when it yes. comes to the G and ESG. Exactly. But when it comes to the E, the environmental factor, there are, uh, you know, a number of investors in real assets, in oil and gas and infrastructure and real estate who are figuring out best practices. And it's because their limited partners are encouraging them to develop a good thought process around mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. And then within the S, which is the social factor, that's one that I think is becoming more prominent throughout the industry as, you know, general partners are, are thinking more about the benefits of having diverse backgrounds and diverse thought at the table. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. when it comes to, to hiring women or hiring people, you know, with diverse backgrounds, that's becoming more important as well. Hmm. So how does it kind of work on a day-to-day basis? I mean, how are LPs actually assessing these factors? How do you sort of gain these insights into what's going on at the GP level? It's a prominent part of due diligence because during due diligence, you know, as an LP, we spend a lot of time with the general partners we're underwriting. And so it's it's sitting across the table from, from the team. It's sitting across the table from, you know, everyone at the firm. Mm-hmm. But it's also asking the questions of what turnover looks like at the firm. You know, who's left in the past five years? Why have those people left? Maybe, yeah. um, doing a little bit of outside homework and trying to figure out kind of what that culture is and does it support a culture of diversity? Does it support mm-hmm, a culture mm-hmm. that would encourage, you know, women to to want to work and stay there? And it's it's not a dicey issue, but it's um it's one where we do work in an industry that is primarily dominated by uh, white males. And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's uh it becomes a delicate question, but one that we have to ask and we have to be thoughtful about and it's 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 great the kind of responses we're getting when we are asking the question. Yeah. I think you were mentioning how it's changed just in the last five or 10 years. How have you seen it kind of change, I guess, over that time period? Like if you look back at the work you were doing at Wells mm-hmm. and you were due diligencing alternatives managers five, 10 years ago, were you asking really detailed questions on this or is it all still pretty new? So if I think back to you know, the types of questions that we asked. We always asked about departures from the firm and mm-hmm. who's left at the you know senior level in the past five years and why do they leave and what yeah. are they doing and how did you replace them? And, you know, you're trying to kind of assess team dynamics. And so team dynamics have always been super important. What I would say is changed is that we're being a little more specific with our lines of questioning. Mm. And, and I'll give you an example um, because I do this all the time now. If I'm sitting across the table from a general partner in, and it could be the first meeting, it could be the second meeting, mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking at their team page and I don't see any women or people of color, then I ask the question. I say, how are you thinking about diversity mm-hmm, when you mm-hmm. are thinking about building your firm? Is it something that's important to you? Yeah. Is it something that's important to um, to your firm? And I get a, a wide range of answers when I ask it, but I'll tell you that 15 years ago, I certainly was not asking that question. Hmm. And I, I'm asking it because it's important to our clients. Our clients yeah. are asking that question. They want to know how that general partner is thinking about diversity with their firm. Yeah but they also want to know how they're thinking about it when it applies to their portfolio companies. 
And so there are some groups that may be all white males at the GP level. But Mm -hmm. if you look through to their portfolio companies, they have, you know, a number of women and people of color in management positions throughout their portfolio. And so it's, you know, you have to kind of, you have to dig a little bit deeper when you're asking the question to understand how they're really thinking about it. That makes sense. Now, I mean, I'm sure you've got fantastic firsthand knowledge of this topic as well. Just being a woman in this industry for the last 15 years, as you mentioned, it being sort of a traditionally male-dominated industry. I mean, what's what's just what's been your kind of personal experience and 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 how that's worked for you? So I, I'm not a stranger to being the only woman in the room. <laughs> um, I would say that that's changing, that's evolving, and it's yeah. nice to see more women coming into this business. You know, it's one where. I've in some ways had to kind of blaze my own trail and create my own path mm-hmm. because I've, I've not seen women kind of do it ahead of me, at least kind of, you know, in the various like roles that I've played throughout right. my career. And so that's been great, but I've also had a lot of good sort of, you know, I would say there's a little bit difference between mentorship and sponsorship, but mm-hmm. I've had mm-hmm. great mentors and sponsors that have helped encourage me in my career. And I don't think it has anything to do with my being a woman, but it just has to do with with wanting to see me be successful and sort of, you know, celebrating in that success. I'm seeing change happen. I don't think that I'm seeing it happen as quickly as I would want, but I also know that Rome wasn't built in a day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're seeing a lot of firms really staffing up and hiring at that, you know, kind of entry level. Yeah. And it's going to take a while to really start to see women in more leadership roles. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What I would say is, is if you didn't have, you know, very obvious female mentors for you over the course of your career. Um, I think what's really cool is now that you're in a position to to be that uh, mentor for um, for some of the younger folks in our organization. I know that you're very involved in, um, in the leadership committee for the Bearings Women's Network. So I think it's really cool to see you giving back even just in our own internal community here and helping people along in their career. So I think that's great. Oh, thanks. I'm very happy to be more involved with the organization. And it's, I think we're doing really good things. Awesome. So transitioning from ESG, I think something that we're probably thinking about collectively all the time to maybe something that at least I did not really understand was going on or know the nuances of. And that's another trend that we're seeing. And that's basically that we're often seeing general partners uh, extend the lives of private equity funds. So extend them beyond uh, what were their original agreed upon legal lives. And I guess there's different reasons why GPs uh, might wanna do this, but there are some potentially pretty big implications for LPs, especially when you think about paying fees for a longer time period than you were originally expecting. So tell me how you think about this trend generally. Sure. and. The reason we chose to write about this in the piece was because this is one of the most common issues that comes before us as limited partners. And so we are addressing, you know, fund life extensions on a a very regular basis. And we're seeing, you know, GPs approach it in different ways. I mean, ultimately, you you hope that a GP is extending the life of their fund because they want to achieve the best realizations for their investors, full stop. But as an LP, you have to sit back and think and say, I underwrote this fund to be around for 10 years, maybe mm-hmm. with a couple one-year extensions. Right. I underwrote paying fees for that period of time. 
this GP is coming to me to to ask me to extend the life of that fund. And so you have to step back and ask the question, you know, what's left in the fund? What is the exit plan for those businesses or that business that might be there? You know, is it one of the first deals or is it one of the last deals? And so you just sure. have to understand the nuances of, of what's there and what it's going to cost to affect the best outcome for everybody, for for the GPs and for the LPs as well. And so Another trend that we're seeing with respect to this nuance is that it seems as if a lot of folks are just signing those docs and sending them right on back and they're not asking the question. Hmm. And so this was one that we wanted to flag to say like, hey, instead of just signing it, let's let's maybe have a dialogue with other limited partners. Let's talk to the general partner. Let's ask for maybe budgets and, and understand what we still own and how long it will take to realize those deals. That's great. That's really, really insightful. You know, I think as we kind of wind up the conversation here, I think that um, some of the trends you've identified here, some of them are probably known, some of them less known. But I think what you've done here in in the written piece and, and also in the conversation here is hopefully provided a little bit of a roadmap for other limited partner investors to think about, you know, what are what are some of the issues they should be focusing on? And also to make sure they're not just ticking the boxes and signing the docs, but actually taking a look at what's going on here and doing the homework a little more. So I think hopefully you've inspired a little more homework on the part of uh, on the part of LPs. You know, with that, I wanted to thank you again for joining. I, I would point our listeners to the written piece on bearings.com in the viewpoint section called Views from the LPAC Seat, where you, you can see Liz and her colleague Brian Pope have discussed. Uh, some of these trends in more detail. So I'd go and check that out. And uh, otherwise, Liz, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Greg. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from the team here at Bearings, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Streaming Income. Or find us on the web at bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again. What about um, what podcasts are you currently listening to, if any? Um, podcasts have become a guilty pleasure. Mm-hmm, they started out mm-hmm. as things like, oh, I should learn more mm-hmm, about this, but it's mm-hmm. become like almost like beach reading. So yep, I'm now listening yep. to Cold, which is another true crime related right. one. The true crime ones are like chart toppers. Yeah, Cold is good because there's the people that were involved in the crime or the, yep. you know, whatever happened. I won't spoil it for you. Okay. But, um, they kept a lot of journals and a lot of audio journals. So there's a lot of oh, wow. like, oh, wow. there's a lot of like primary really research cool. related content. Yeah. That, I mean, it's crazy because it's, really you know, cool. they'll, they'll play this guy's audio journal wow. where okay. he's, you know, talking about his wife who yeah. doesn't survive. <laughs> so, wow. All right. Yeah. So if you're going to plan something really diabolical mm-hmm. and you want it to become a huge podcast in the future, the mm-hmm. lesson is to record your thoughts exactly yes yes good good okay